This is Witness Conference 2014 with Jeff Yulden. His topic is Characteristics of a Healthy Church. Well, good evening, everybody. We are happy that uh, you're here. I'm delighted I'm here. I've just been in Melbourne running a series of meetings for the last six weeks, and uh, the weather is nothing like the weather here. So I'm delighted to be here. Some years ago, I visited uh, Nablus, which is over in Israel, and I got up very early on um, the morning, in fact, about four o'clock. I'd hired a car, and I was driving up to Nablus. Now, Nablus, in case you don't know, is in what we call the West Bank. Now, that's highly... Um, highly uh, ignited area. It's... it's um, it's where no Israeli would go if he values his life. And, you, and up there, you don't hire a Jewish car, otherwise you'd get stoned. Um, I mean, literally stoned. Um, make sure your, uh, your numbers on your car are Arabs, because uh, it's highly volatile. But I wanted to go to Nablus, because Nablus is the place where Jesus met the woman of Samaria. And you remember his um, meeting with her. She had uh, come down to get some water at the well, and Jesus met her there. And if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, I want to turn to John chapter 4 and verse 35. The fourth chapter of John and verse 35, and he said these words to the disciples. John 4, after the woman had left to go back to Samaria. And by the way, Samaria is only within walking distance of uh, Jacob's well. And Jacob's well is famous, of course, for two things, not only because of what Jesus did at the woman, with the woman at the well, but also going back uh, to the time when Jacob actually dug it. And the water is still drinkable after all of these long years. And uh, I had a drink of that uh, water there at Nablus. But Jesus made a statement which I want to uh, preface my remarks today with John chapter 4 and verse 35. And he says, Do not say there are still four months and then comes the harvest. Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already white for harvest. In other words, as far as Jesus was concerned, the harvest was now. It wasn't in the future. And if those words were true 2,000 years ago, they are even more true today. The harvest is ready. The harvest is ripe. But the problem is, Jesus stated the problem over here in the book of... Um, Matthew, the ninth chapter, and I'd like you to turn there too, if you wouldn't mind, talking of the harvest and the issue of the last days, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 9 and verse, well, verse 37 and 38, he said, then he said to the disciples, the harvest is truly is plentiful, but the laborers are what? few. So when it comes to winning souls, is there a problem with, winning, with, with people that are looking wistfully to heaven? Is there a problem with that? 
Not a problem at all. There are plenty of people outside who want to know the, the truths. They may not be able to articulate that that's their need because they don't really understand, but they have a longing in their heart for something better than they've got at the moment. And Jesus said here, the harvest is, is plenteous, but he said the laborers are few. And then he said, verse 38, therefore pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. So what is the need? The need is for laborers. And in the church today, that's what we need to understand. We need people. We need young people like you. We need men and women who will devote their life to the work of winning souls. That's our greatest need. You know, I visited um, India some years ago and I went there to see a number of things, but one of the things that I wanted to see above all things was the Taj Mahal, one of the most magnificent buildings in the world. And I was intrigued and also not only intrigued but rather shocked to hear the story of the Taj. Now remember, it was built by Shah, the Mongol Shah Jahan, for his wife, his favorite wife who died. And uh, he was so devastated by her death that he wanted to build something in honor of his favorite wife. So when her remains were placed in a box, he put this box in the, in the field. And then he began construction of the building around the box. And of course, as the days went into weeks and then they went into months, gradually the, the, the grief that he had for his dead wife was surpassed by the desire to build and the passion to build this building. And on one occasion, he was walking around the field, sizing up the building, and his foot kicked this box. And it, it was so dusty and everything, it just threw dust all over his uh, shoes and over his uh, trousers. And he said to one of the uh, servants that he had there, get rid of that box. Little did the Shah realize that the box with the remains of his wife. It had been forgotten in the building of the Taj because he had become so consumed with the building, he'd forgotten the reason for the building. Now, when I uh, read that experience, I thought that's exactly what can happen to us, that the church today existed originally for winning souls. And the greatest danger is, as we have become occupied with the church and building the church, all good, the same as building the, the mausoleum by the Shah, nothing wrong with that. But the danger is that in the building of the institutions and the building of the church, 
that we can forget the reason that we're here. And the reason is not the buildings. The reason is not the institutions, important as good as they are. The reason is soul winning, to grow the church. That's the reason we're here. That's the reason the church exists. All the other things are there to help us in the work of winning souls. And today I want to talk to you on the characteristics of a growing church. Because over the years, one gains some information as one watches what is taking place in some areas and what isn't taking place in others. And I want to suggest to you that there are a number of reasons for a growing church. The first reason that I have, if the church is not growing, it's not healthy. In other words, it's a sick church. I have a little granddaughter who some years ago was three years of age. She's a bit older than that now, but she was three. And uh, she would come to me and Poppy, she'd say, look at my drawing. And then, because I couldn't understand all the scribbles and the lines and so forth, or just appeared to me scribbles, I said to her, Gracie, tell me, what does that represent? Tell me, what is, this, what is this? And she would explain that this scribble represented the trees and this scribble represented a house and this scribble represented the sky. I would never have guessed it, except she told me. But I understood at the age of three, that's what I expect. I'm a three-year-old. But now that she's nine, if she came to me with scribbles like that, I know that would be something seriously wrong. Isn't that right? Very wrong. And so it is with the church. The church is not growing. It's not healthy. And if the church is still doing scribbles when it should be doing proper paintings, there's something very, very wrong. The second suggestion I have for a growing church is that the church does not grow by accident. It just doesn't happen. It's got to be planned. Just as a baby grows, if it's fed and nurtured and trained, you see development. The same is true of the church. The third reason I want to suggest is that the pastor is the key to the growth of the church. Now, why do I say that? Because he or she must be totally committed to the fact that this church that he or she is in charge of must grow. They must be totally committed to evangelism. And unless we're committed to that as leaders of the church, the church is never going to grow. I like to think of the paid pastor. And by the way, when we talk about the pastor, we're not necessarily talking about the paid pastor. There are two groups of pastors. There is that group that are paid. That's the small group. But then there is the rest of us who are not paid, but we are called to do the work of ministry, to do the work of a pastor. And we've all got to work together. And uh, the, the paid pastor is really the CEO, if I could use a business uh, model, the CEO of the church. He sets the tone. He sets the bias of the church. 
And if he has that bias, the church will have that bias. I was talking to a pastor just recently who, uh, who uh, was very successful and is very successful in growing his church. And he told me that the successful pastor, he must breathe evangelism. Now, I like that expression. He went on to say that he sees the pastor as the, the, uh, the uh, what should we say, the, uh, the uh, playing coach. Not just a coach, he said, but the coach must be a playing coach. He must get in the trenches with the members. He must do what he expects the members to do. And if he expects the members to get out door knocking, he must get out and do some door knocking. If he expects the uh, members to, uh, to entertain, he must entertain. He must be in the trenches with, uh, with the members. Another uh, in characteristic of a pastor who is having, has a growing church is that the pastor must believe in the Adventist message and must preach the Adventist message and preach it regularly. And he must have a strong, and she must have a strong commitment and strong convictions. And if that pastor has those things, the church will get, catch that, that enthusiasm. It will catch the disease of evangelism, if I could use that word, because it is contagious. The fourth suggestion I have is that uh, the growing church, a soul-winning church, will have a pastor who trains his lay folk to be soul winners. I want to read you a verse that I'm sure you're familiar with over in the book of Ephesians. If you've got your Bibles, I would prefer you to turn them up and not look on the screen. Screen because we have television here. But, you know, I was talking to my group today on Bible studies and... uh, you know, there's a, a desire, and, and there's nothing wrong with this. Uh, don't think that I'm having a go at iPads and so forth. But there are many of us, and particularly the age that we are here, who have iPhones and iPads and all the things that go with it, and you have the Bible on the iPad. Now, I heard before you sent, there was a question about memorizing Scripture. I want to suggest if you want to memorize scripture, that is not a very good way to try to memorize it because memorization is helped by position on the page. And sometimes your memory will not always be clear as to exactly the verse, but you remember, it's up the top left-hand corner. I remember there in the book of Romans. But you can't do that if you're going to follow it on on an iPad. And as I said, I'm not speaking, I'm not here railing against iPads because I'd prefer you to have an iPad than nothing. But the best is to have the sword here in your hand. Get the idea? So let's turn up Ephesians, the fourth chapter. And uh, notice here, um, Ephesians, the fourth chapter. And Paul is writing here to the church. And he's saying in Ephesians, the fourth chapter, that uh, describes something that's very interesting in chapter 4. And you'll notice here in verse 11, right? He says, He himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. Now, why did he give all of those gifts? Verse 12, For the equipping of the saints for the work of the 
ministry for the edifying of the body of Christ till we all come into the unity of the faith. In other words, the text there should not have a comma in. Other translation says, in order to fully equip his people for the work of serving. That's the work of the paid ministry, is to train the church members to become soul winners. That's his primary job, to equip God's people for work in his service, the New English Bible says, in order to get his holy people ready to serve as workers, uh, another translation says. His gifts were made that Christians might be properly equipped for their service. And let me read you what Ellen White says. Let the minister devote more of his time to educating than to preaching. Now, I never understood this for many years. I'll have to confess. But she says here that our, our efforts must go into educating than into preaching. And I'm not minimizing preaching. I think preaching is, uh, is so very, very important. And we need to become better preachers, better preachers, and better preachers. But that's not the most important work. The most important work is educating Let him teach the people how to give to others the knowledge they have received. And I'm challenged by that. In fact, most pastors, including myself for many years, devoted most of our time to equipping ourselves so that we could become better preachers. I have learned over the years that that's not the primary responsibility. Important as preaching is, and I'm not minimizing it, I'm just trying to elevate the necessity of education. In fact, uh, she goes on to say, it is not the Lord's purpose that ministers should be left to do the greatest part of the work of sowing the seeds of truth. That's why many ministers get burnt out because they feel or they are left to do all the responsibility of evangelism. That is not the way it is. In fact, she goes on to say, in laboring where there are already some in the faith, a minister should at first seek not so much to convert unbelievers as to train the church members for acceptable cooperation. Doesn't that make sense when you think about it? You can do more as a team than you can as one individual, even though that one individual might be very efficient and proficient and the best preacher and the best person that there is. But if you've got a dozen people, you can multiply your effectiveness far greater. Isn't that true? It just makes sense. And uh, we need to, as, as leaders in the church, and I look upon you as the leaders of the church, You young people have the church in your hands. You are the generation, the now generation. And young people have a tremendous influence. The evangelistic program I've just conducted, we had young people, a male and a female, do the introduction, similar to what we're doing here. It was very, very effective because it drew other young people to come. And there's something that's fresh and vibrant and very wholesome about young people leading out and let no one despise your youth, as the Bible says. You have a tremendous responsibility to take up the opportunities that is ours. 
Listen to this. Those who would be overcomers must be drawn out of themselves. Listen to this. And the only thing which will accomplish this great work is to become intensely interested in the salvation of others. Isn't that a powerful statement? As you become interested in helping others, it will help your own experience. You become a different person once you start sharing. And for your own salvation's sake, you must uh, become involved. The greatest help that can be given our people is to teach them to work for God. Because an entirely new experience takes place once we begin to work for God. And to depend upon him, not on the minister. If you think about Jesus, what did he do? He spent very little of his time with the multitude. Is that true? When you think about it, Jesus didn't spend a lot of time with the large mass of people. He spent most of his time with the 12 because he realized that the success of the church in the future lay with those 12. He was going to leave and go back. So his, uh, his time with the large numbers is fairly minimal. But he trained the 12. So long as church members make no effort to give others the help given them, great spiritual feebleness must result. No wonder some of our churches are feeble because very few members are being trained and being equipped to do the work of evangelism. And that's why our soul winning is not as high as it ought to be. And why our churches are not growing as they should do. Now, there are exceptions to that, and thank God there are. I'm talking in a general sense. The fifth point that I would like to make today is the healthy, growing church takes the Great Commission as their modus operandi. You know the statement that Jesus uh, gave over here in Matthew chapter 28, the last... uh, the last recorded statement that Jesus made before he went back to heaven. Matthew chapter 28 and verse 18 uh, onwards, where Jesus said, He came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me on heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, Lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. I notice that there are four verbs that Jesus used here. First of all, he said, go. Then what did he say next? Baptize. Then what did he say next? Make disciples. And then what did he say? Teach them. Four great verbs. Go. That's the preparation. That's an indication to my mind of the preparation that we need to do before evangelistic meetings ever take place. That's when we run our five-day plans. That's when we run our cooking classes. That's when we run our depression classes. That's when we do all the seed sowing. We go out. We do door knocking. We use the beyond and any other method that we can think of that will get some interests. 
That's the preparation that we have to do. And listen, if we don't do the preparation before the program starts, the results are always going to be very minimal. Always. But some of us have learnt that if we till the ground before we try to harvest, then we naturally get a good harvest. But if we try to harvest that which hasn't been sown, we will have very minimal results. And that's why some people are negative regarding public evangelism, because when the public evangelistic meetings have been run, very little preparation has ever been done. We blame the evangelist then for a failure. It's not the evangelist's fault. It's the lack of preparation that's been done. But if we will do the preparation, then good results will always follow. Always. And we need to do those four things that Jesus outlines in these verses. And it's a bit like a a stool, you know. You have a four-legged stool and only have three legs on it and see what happens. It'll never be stable. You can't sit on it. We need the four things in order to be successful in our evangelism. And we'll talk a little bit more about that. Then uh, the sixth point that I've got is the growing evangelistic church has a leader who has a very clear vision of where the church needs to go. Very, very clear. And he's able to convey that vision to every person in the pew so that members understand the vision. You know, the Bible says, without a vision, what will happen to the people? They perish. And one of the greatest things that we can do as leaders in the church is to convey the vision that we have so that every person in the congregation will get that vision. My next point, point seven. The healthy, growing church has clear goals for the next five years. How important that is. What might those goals be? Well, one of the goals might be that we would like to see this church increase its members by 40% over the next five years. Now, that's a quantitative, it's it's a realistic uh, number, 40% over the next five years. That means that if we break that down into five, how much growth would you need each year? Your foundation members of the maths class, I can see. Some mathematician, tell us. 8%, yes. 8%. That's not hard to work out, is it? 5 into 40 goes 8. All right, then if we're going to have 40% growth in our church over a five-year period, we break it down into 8%. So this year, we're planning to win 8% to grow our church by 8%. Now, why is it important to do that? Because if we're going to do that, then we need to put in place programs to make sure that happens. It's not going to happen just because we decide that that's going to happen. It's, it's going to happen only when we make that decision and then we put into operation plans that will facilitate the growth of the church by 8%. And 
And I tell you, look, 8% is not a huge number. Because the larger the church is, the more people you've got to help. If it's only a small church, if it has, say, 50 members, well, how many, member, how many baptisms would you need in 50, for a membership of 50? You folk are smart when it comes to mathematics. How many? 50? Four. Yeah, four. Now, surely... Four members shouldn't be hard, is that right? If you've got 50 members? Dear, oh dear. The problem is that our thinking has often been too small. Therefore, I put into operation all the plans that will need to be added if we're going to be successful in growing our church in the coming year. And those plans will vary. For example... I think one of the good things these days that we can run are depression courses. And uh, down in Melbourne, we uh, had Cherie Peters come, and some of the best interest that we got came from her program. Because, you see, people who come to her program have a need. And until a person has a need, I don't think they're ever going to turn their hearts to God. But these people came out, and many of them are, are studying now and attended the meetings all the way through and uh, are planning to be baptized. Quite a few of them said to me, Pastor, we're going to be baptized soon. Wonderful. Wonderful. And it happens when we plan. And not only that, depression courses. People, many people are suffering from depression in our society today. And, and we can run those programs uh, because it, it's all on video and, and DVDs, and you don't have to know all the information because the information's been done by a professional. Helping people give up smoking, if that's what you want to do. Cooking classes. Wonderful avenue when we use it evangelistically, not just to teach them how to cook, because if we just teach them how to cook, all we're doing is extending their life a little to sin a little, a little bit more. So that's, that's not our purpose. Our purpose has to be evangelistic, that we are extending their life so that they've got time to not only to, to live longer, but to get to know God. Isn't that right? Yes. And uh, so we will have plans. We'll have plans for the next five years. We'll then break that down into three years, into one year. And when we have plans like that in our church then they are, they're, they're plans that we can all accomplish. And I talk to you not because I'm expecting you to be the paid ministry at the moment. Some of you are and some of you will be. Thank God for that. But many of you won't, but you are board members. You are members of your church and it's time that you spoke up and helped on your board meetings and your business meetings to talk about these things. Bring these subjects up. It may be a new thought to some of the members of the church, but if you get passionate about it, it's amazing how your passion will start to filter through to other members in the church. 8% growth. And I have found that evangelism is best divided into three simple sections. The first is the sowing. And we've been talking a lot about these preparation programs. The sowing. And the better the sowing is done, the better the reaping is going to be. Then there is the reaping. 
And as we said, it's no good trying to reap what you haven't sown. And it's no good sowing unless you plan to reap. Isn't that right? And one of, the, one of the strange things that I have noticed in some of our churches is that they are very keen on running a lot of these programs. It's not, this is not a new thought to, to many at all. We've been doing a lot of these things. But those same churches often never reap the interest that they stimulate. Get these people on the, on the cooking classes and the depression classes and, and, and maybe Cherie Peter's program and, and, and this program and archaeology and all these other programs that we can run, but we never then take them the next step of trying to reach them. That's where the public meetings must be run. And then the third section, the sowing, then there's the reaping, and then the third section is the nurture because we must nurture these new people, otherwise they'll drop out, because we've got to nurture them with new friends. We've got to nurture them and help them overcome bad habits. We have to nurture them in all the things that they need to be supported in when they've accepted a new way of thinking. That's where the nurture comes in. And those three things must always be put together, and when we put them together, we will have great success. I'd like to suggest to you that a healthy, growing church, board meetings are very different to ordinary board meetings. Very different. A growing church has board meetings. We, we cannot do away with board meetings. When we're running a church, you've got to have organization. I meet some people who who are put a negative about all these meetings. No, there is a place. We've got to organize. You can't have everyone running in different directions. Otherwise, you do nothing. It must be organized. But a growing church's board meetings are very different to another church's board meetings because a growing church's board meeting, the first thing that they discuss at the board meeting is their soul winning. And every department that gives a report then is reporting on how they are helping achieve the aims that the church has for the the year. Get the idea? How is the Sabbath school contributing to growing our church by 8% this year? How are the youth department, how is that contributing to the growth of the church? What are they doing to help grow the church? What is each department doing And that's what's discussed at the board meeting. Ahead of what colour carpet we're going to have and whether we're going to paint the church today or next week, they are important things, but they're not the most important thing. The most important thing is the evangelistic emphasis. And so the first thing that we discuss on a growing church's board meeting is the evangelism. That's the first thing on the agenda. And then we relate that back to... uh, to, uh, our growth aims and plans. Our budget is set. The church sets its budget with evangelism as its top priority. Not just by giving a few uh, dollars at the end when there's everything else being cared for. No, evangelism is the most important thing. And if there's anyone going to suffer, it's not the evangelism. Because that is top priority. I would like to suggest my point number nine is this. A growing evangelistic church will have a public evangelism as part of its yearly outreach. Now, I cannot emphasize this uh, too much. 
Now you say, well, that's all very well. You love public evangelism and that's what you do, so you're going to emphasize this. No, let me explain why it must fit into every growing church's program. Any church that is not using public evangelism is not growing by very much. Now, you can have some growth without running public programs. That is true. It'll be one or two here, the youth of the church, and there's nothing wrong with that. That's important, very important. But if we're going to see real growth, you've got to have a reaping segment in your church program every year. Not just once every so often, like happens. You know, I go to a church and we, we run an evangelistic program and then they sit back and don't have another one for the next five years. This is what happens over and over and over again. That's not the plan that we have. There must be a reaping component in the church program every year. Now, when I'm talking about a reaping campaign, I'm not necessarily talking about someone standing up the front and doing it solo. That is a very important and a very effective way of doing it, but it's not the only way. Running Daniel and Revelation seminars, seminar evangelism is, is very, very effective. And we've already got those uh, seminars already done for us. All we have to do is to make it part of our church plan for this year. In other words, if I uh, am believing in, in uh, a reaping campaign at, as a pastor, I will work out and say, well, at this particular month or these two months, this is going to be our reaping segment of the year. We're going to be sowing here and sowing there, and we're going to be keep sowing, but we're going to have a reaping cam- campaign because the cream that comes to the surface, we can reap as that cream surfaces. Get the idea? Because cream will come to the surface at different times. And as it does, we skim it off. And we are always reaping, we are always sowing and always reaping. And of course, that implies that we're always nurturing as well. The three things we're rowing the boat with now three oars. Two at, the, two at the front and one at the back. Keeping the boat straight. Because each of those things is very important. Vital if we're going to have success in our church. In fact, let me read you a text that supports what I'm saying. It's found over here in the book of Acts, the uh, 20th chapter. I call this 2020 vision. That's how you can remember it. Acts 20.20. This is talking about the work in the book of Acts and how the church grew in, uh, in the early days, in the first century. And Paul outlines how he grew the church. It says, verse 20, How I kept back nothing that was helpful, but proclaimed it to you and taught you what? Publicly. And from what? House to house there's the combination of both things together and that's what we must do we must have the uh, the personal work as well as the public work and unfortunately often we find churches that want to major in one or the other but we've got to have both as to have uh, a balance and uh, that's one of the um, 
the strange enigmas of many of our uh, churches. And today, the idea that public evangelism doesn't work is a myth. It's a greatest myth that continues to be repeated. And unfortunately, it's given some legs because sometimes we try to run evangelistic programs and we've done very little preparation. So what are going to be the results? I don't care if Gabriel was the preacher. (laughs) And no preparation is done, very little results will take place because there's nothing magical about just standing up in front of an audience. That's not magical. What is important is to have people who are interested and who have been prepared in the audience, then you can do something with those people. And then it becomes a reaping campaign. And uh, unfortunately, some have tried to go to Sunday-keeping churches to try to emulate the way they do evangelism, and it's never worked in the Adventist church. They've been to uh, places like Willow Creek and churches like that. And it never, ever has ever worked inside the Adventist church because our message is different to theirs. We are not just changing them from one Sunday-keeping church to another. We have to teach them a completely new lifestyle, a completely new set of doctrines. And so with public evangelism goes the teaching emphasis. And Adventist Public evangelism is different to Sunday-keeping evangelism because it involves a teaching aspect and a very deep teaching uh, program. Now, I also believe in small groups. I believe that no church is really going to grow except that it has a small group ministry going on. Because in the small groups, that's where the nurture takes place. That's where the relationships are built in those small groups. And any church that seriously wants to grow must have uh, small groups. And unfortunately, I have noticed that those who are into small groups, and we have some who are very high on small groups in the Adventist church, and that's good, but... What's not so good is that often those people are not into public preaching, into the reaping aspect of it. So they're so high on developing small groups, but they never do the reaping. And then there are others who want to major in the public program, but they are not interested so much in the small groups. Both are wrong, because we need both to go, because one feeds the other. I was in uh, Melbourne just uh, recently... And I went to one of these small groups, and they were actually uh, celebrating the communion service in the small group. Now, I'd never been in a small group which celebrated the communion service before, and I was very intrigued by what took place. Very intrigued. I saw there the interaction with the people. I saw the encouragement that took took place. I saw the fun that they had together as they laughed and, and so forth together. And then I noticed uh, that they affirmed one another in that group. And the social interaction that took place. No wonder they're keeping their people, because the people love meeting together. And then the public program, when it comes in the church on Sabbath, simply all the church comes together. But the real work is done in those small groups. And I want to encourage you as leaders in your church to get small groups going. 
It's vital. It's important. And by the way, small groups are not something that we've copied from Sunday-keeping churches. They copied it from us. Alan, Alan White... Alan White talked about small groups. She calls them cottage meetings. And she said that the cottage meetings are so very, very important. And so uh, we need uh, to follow her counsel and, uh, and follow that through. And, and people are best nurtured. You know, sometimes I have noticed that some of our small groups are groups that are concerned with only nurture, not evangelism, sort of talking to one another. Church members who are only nurturing people will never grow strong Christians. There needs to be more than just nurture. Nurture is important, but there needs to be an outreach as well because the nurturing takes best, as we read before, as we share with others. As we help others, we help ourselves. And nothing is more wonderful than to be able to share with something else. And I often go home from an evangelistic meeting uh, on cloud nine simply because to have had the privilege of speaking to people and to see their reaction and their positive reaction and accepting the message lifts my own spirits. And it will do your spirit just so much good when you're visiting people and, you're, and studying with them and they, you see the light in their eyes. Suddenly it dawns on them what you're saying and it makes sense, they'll tell you. And that change that takes place in people's hearts will encourage you like nothing else. And as Ellen White has reminded us, the, the way to grow spiritually is to help others. My last point is... Prayer is vital, a vital strategy in growing the evangelistic uh, church. Prayer for our own conversion and prayer for the lost in our communities. I have been with pastors who have taken me out in their churches when we're organizing evangelistic programs. And on Sunday morning, we've gotten up early and we have gone to strategic places in town and we have prayed for the town I think that's a wonderful idea praying for the lost and this particular pastor used to take his elders and his leaders up and they would pray at uh, different sections around the town wonderful idea and uh, if you will do that you'll find a transformation. Now, I said there was 11. There's actually 12 points. What's the 12th? Every member has an assigned territory. You know, I'm, I, the older I get, the more I'm convinced that uh, we all need to have our own territory and work it. We've done that with the Appeal for Missions over the years, and it's been very successful because if you go back year after year, my wife goes back to a territory that they have and uh, they know her now and they just give her fairly large sums of money because they've gotten to trust her. Now, the same is true. If you work your territory, then uh, you will find that the people will begin to develop a relationship with you. And uh, so we need to have our own territory. You know, I have a vision. If I could borrow Martin Luther King's phraseology I have a vision today 
that every pastor in our church will have a passion for the lost. Not just the administration of the church, but a passion for the lost. I have a vision where I see lay people everywhere supporting their pastors and helping them and being trained by their pastors so that they can go out to win souls. And I have a vision where I see the last great work that's going to take place on this earth driven by young people who are committed to this cause, committed to uh, spreading the Adventist message. That is their passion. That is the other job that they do is only done to provide them with money so that they can do their passion. Their passion is their main drive in life, winning souls. Everything else is there to support that. I have a vision, and I would like to think that it's going to start with those of us who are in this conference. As we go back to our churches to inspire and to, and to lead and to, uh, to uh, provide an impetus Because if we will stand and if we will explain our enthusiasm and folk will see it, it'll be be contagious. And I want to encourage you as we we, uh, pray now that God will be uh, able to transform our life, not just into believing what we believe, but in sharing what we believe. Because Jesus is coming soon. Is that right? I believe that, and you believe it. That's why you're here. And I want you to be ready when Jesus comes. Let's just bow our heads in prayer. Our wonderful Father in heaven, I just want to thank you today for the privilege that is ours to be a member of your family, the last great work on this earth. Lord, you have called us from darkness into marvelous light. And I pray, Lord, that you will just continue to be with us and inspire us and enthuse us and just help us to take the lead in our churches to support our paid ministers so that uh, together we can march toward that heavenly kingdom. There are so many people. The harvest, Jesus said, is plenteous. It's the reapers. And so I pray for the reapers today. Bless us now, I pray, and be with us until Jesus comes. It's my prayer for his name's sake. Amen. This has been 3ABN On The Road. If you have any questions or comments in relation to today's program, you can call 3ABN Australia within Australia on 02-4973-3456 or from outside of Australia on country code 612-4973-3456. Our email address is radio at 3abnaustralia.org.au.
The Archipella Collection, We Will Glorify. And before that, Henry Higgins played Saviour Like a Shepherd. <laughs> 